Hello and welcome to your Over the Farm Cake podcast, brought to you by Farmers Guardian. I'm your host, FG Chief Reporter, Abby Kay. Don't forget, we'll bring you a new episode of the podcast every Tuesday. Just make sure you're subscribed on all your favourite platforms. Last week, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison agreed the broad terms of a free trade deal between the UK and Australia over dinner, a deal which has rung alarm bells across the industry. The government has insisted British farmers will be protected by a cap on tariff-free imports from Australia, but it has since emerged that beef and sheep tariffs will be eliminated after 10 years, sugar after eight and dairy after five. So what does all this mean for British farmers and how might any negative impact be mitigated? We'll be talking to National Sheep Association Chief Executive Phil Stocker about his members' concerns. But first, here's David Swales from AHDB to discuss the beef sector. So David, now that we have a few of the details about this deal, can you tell us what kind of impact you think it will have on the UK beef sector? Yeah, thanks, Abby. Um, I think we do have some details now. I think it's fair to say that the details that have been announced are quite headline and we're expecting uh, further negotiations to take part over the coming months. And the deal itself won't probably come in until late 2022 or, or maybe even early 23. So we're still a, a way off having to feel the impact of this deal. Uh, but certainly we know a little bit about the types of volumes which will which will be involved. So, I mean, the, the deal talks about uh, an initial tariff rate quota, so a, a sort of tariff-free trade amount for beef of 35,000 tonnes. And that will uh, rise year by year over this sort of 10-year period uh, to peak at about 110,000 tonnes. And then after that, there's going to be a, a further safeguarding period of five years, which will take the limit up to about 170,000 tonnes. So these are quite big volumes. I guess that's that's my uh, reaction to it. If, if you consider that the UK as a whole imports about 270,000 tonnes, a sort of end point of 170,000 tonnes feels like quite a, a, a big volume of, of beef to be importing from, from Australia. Uh, at present, we only import about two and a half to 3,000 tonnes uh, of Australian beef into the UK. Uh, and that's under a, a quota arrangement whereby there's a, a quota of about 20%. So to move to tariff-free trade and, and potentially such a high volume would have quite a big impact on our market. Although, um, just because that quota is in place uh, and, and they could potentially send that product to us doesn't mean that they will. Uh, and I think the sort of the market realities might mean that the impact is somewhat less than, than the deal might allow. And perhaps we might talk about that in, in a little bit more detail later. Do we know anything about the kind of cuts that the Australians want to send here? Will there be an impact on carcass balance? You know, if they're sending the higher value cuts, will that be an issue? Yeah, so uh, Australia, obviously, they, they, they're they a big producer of beef uh, and they export their product to a range of markets around the world. Uh, so at the minute, their big main markets are, are places like Japan and South Korea and, and the US. Um, uh, and the value of those markets tends to be quite high. So they, they I mean, their big uh, export is, is boneless cuts, uh, and they will be exporting to those markets at around about £6,500 a tonne. Uh, now, if you look at our imports as a country, we tend to import an average of around about £5,000 a tonne, and, and that's because we're importing a whole range of different cuts 
including mints and, and products uh, of a lower value, particularly from the Republic of Ireland. So um, I suspect that uh, the Australians will be will be more likely to target the higher value cuts if they do send product here, uh, because I mean, it wouldn't make sense to to, uh, to move product from a market where you're getting six thousand five hundred pounds a ton to send it to us for, for five thousand pounds a ton. There, there's no sense in that. So. Uh, if we do see products coming to these shores, it will, I, I suspect it will tend to be that higher value product. So you mentioned that um, the Australians might not actually fill their quota here. Um, the government has built in some other safeguards into this trade deal. Can you explain a little bit about those and whether they'll actually work? Um, yeah, so um, it's interesting. This is this is a, a kind of a, a new era for us, really, because until now, the the types of deals the UK government has been negotiating have been kind of rollover deals of, of the arrangements we had in place as a member of the EU. So this deal's kind of the first one which the UK has negotiated outside of uh, that sort of rollover arrangement, um, and and it is. I mean, it's good that there's some safeguards in place. Uh, a lot of trade deals would have these types of safeguard measures uh, in, in place. So basically what the safeguards mean is, is there is a, a volume of, of product which um, Australia will be able to send to us quota free. Uh, but it doesn't start at the maximum volume immediately. It starts at about 35,000 tonnes and then it builds up year on year gradually up until up until a total amount, which which ends up peaking at about 170,000 tonnes in, in 15 years time. So the idea of that is to allow um, uh, the market to adjust to ensure our, our market isn't flooded with Australian products. Um, uh, and I mean, it, it just it basically allows uh, both trading partners time to adjust, basically. Um, my my view on the safeguards and the quotas are they're actually quite high. Uh, so, I mean, lots of trade deals would have these types of arrangements in place. But just to give you another example, the, the deal Japan and the EU negotiated had a, a, an initial uh, tariff quota of around 40,000 tonnes, which rose to about 50,000 tonnes in, in, in 15 years. Uh, and that wasn't even completely tariff free. So there's still an element of tariff at around about 10% at the end of that transition period. So I think the safeguards we have in place, that they are there, but they are, I mean, they're quite generous. Let's put it that way to, to, to the Australians. They allow the Australian uh, farmers quite a bit of access to our market. Moving on to standards then, what, what are the main differences in beef production in the UK and Australia? Um, yes, yeah, so th there are quite a lot of differences, and I think probably the, the big one will be around scale of operation. Uh, so when you look at suckler herds, there's probably quite a bit of variability there in terms of size, and they are pasture-based systems. Uh, so you, you will get smaller farms of about 200 to 500 head, uh, but then you'll get some quite large farms going all the way up to sort of 1,000 to 1,500 head. Uh, and they will tend to be quite extensively managed, those, those larger suckler herds. Uh, but the big difference, I think, will be in, in terms of finishing units. So a, a typical Australian uh, finisher unit will be about 27,000 head. Um, and, and they may well use things like growth uh, promoters, which, which wouldn't be allowed in the UK. 
uh, and, and because of all those things, but particularly because of the, the size of the units, um, uh, their costs of production will be significantly lower the, than the UK uh, farm costs of production. Uh, and and it's, I think it's because of that which you, you see the concern in the industry um, at the moment, because you know, I mean, our ability to compete uh, at farm level um, is probably restricted just, just because of those differences in, in production systems. Uh, so I, I kind of understand that concern, um, but we don't compete jumping solely at farm level. We compete across the supply chain. Uh, and just because Australia do have cheaper production than us doesn't mean that we suddenly have a flood of product coming into our market. Because as I've highlighted, Australia have access to some really good markets to, to export to at the minute. So jumping, they're not necessarily going to move loads of product out of a, a really high value market. To send send that product to us. How do we protect UK farmers then in this scenario where they're having to compete with farmers who can benefit from economies of scale? Um, well, well, to be frank, I don't think protecting farmers is is high on the government's agenda. It would would be my comment on that. Um, so um, I think. I mean, the, the government's language around this is about providing these safeguards and these quotas. And it's all about um, when you look at the words they use, it's about allowing farmers time to adapt. So they don't really talk about protecting farmers. They talk about farmers adapting to this, this new reality. Uh, and, and I think it's something John, we all need to, to, to be um, aware of. John, I mean, there will be increased competition on our markets that the government is looking to go out and try, strike these free trade agreements with, with new countries around the world. Uh, and that will give us some opportunities to export our product um, uh, to, to, to some of these markets. But it also provides um, increased competition uh, on our domestic market. Uh, and I think the reality is that increased competition will impact on farmers' bottom lines and they will have to adapt to that new reality. I mean, it's a very fair comment to say government doesn't talk about protecting farmers, but what they do talk about is protecting standards. How will UK production standards specifically be protected in this deal? Do we know that? Yeah, well, that's that's some of the detail which we haven't seen yet, Abby. And I think it's, it's the detail which everybody wants to know about. It's, it's certainly been debated a lot in the industry at, at the moment. Uh, and I completely get that. John. What farmers don't want to do is to be in a situation where they have unfair competition. So, John, the, the, the beef um, uh, growth hormones and, and, and growth promoters is a good example. If um, part of the reason why Australian beef cost of productions are lower is because they have access to that technology and our farmers don't have access. I mean, many farmers feel aggrieved about that situation. So I would expect there's, there will be some sort of stipulations and requirements in the deal, which, which maybe say certain things aren't allowed. Um, but we shouldn't see that these standards as being a way of protecting ourselves uh, against trade from Australia, because I think the reality is Australia is a, is a big beef exporter. Uh, and it supplies a range of markets around the world. So whatever we set those standards to, I'm sure that over time, the Australian uh, farmers will be able to adapt their systems 
to meet whatever standard we put forward. So, I mean, that, that may well raise some of their costs slightly. It may add a bit of complexity to their systems. But if the rewards are there and there's a, a valuable market to access, they will be able to pivot their production in, in the medium to long term. So we shouldn't see the standards as a way of giving us like long term protection. It's just a way of ensuring we're competing on a like for like basis. We've heard a lot about how this deal sets a precedent for other negotiations and I have to say, through recent experience, it seems as though that's true. I mean, I interviewed the New Zealand Trade and Agriculture Minister, Damien O'Connor, recently, and he told me that New Zealand will be seeking the elimination of all agricultural tariffs. How much of a problem is that going to be for UK farming? Um, well, it's, it's definitely a challenge. And I, I think you're right. This this deal probably will set a bit of a precedent because New Zealand will be saying, well, this is what you've agreed with with Australia. We want the same. Uh, uh, and yeah, there, there's there's challenges there without doubt. I, I think for me, um, there's a danger here. We see see trade deals as being completely negative and it's all about the risks and the challenges for our domestic market. I think we do need to look at it as a two-way thing. Uh, and I mean, my, my comment to government would be that at the minute, the trade deals they're talking about are I mean, Australia, New Zealand uh, and the US. And those are all really big um, agricultural exporters. I mean, it'd be great if we could start to talk about some trade deals for some other markets, which maybe there's there's greater opportunities uh, for, for UK agriculture to, to export to. So, John, we've done some work in this in, in the market intelligence team at AHDB and tried to map out where some of those big opportunities would be. And, and a lot of it is countries in, in the Asia Pacific region. So some of these markets Australia already has good access to. We don't have particularly good uh, or certainly not preferable access to some of those markets. So it'd be great if the government could maybe start to go into some trade negotiations with some of those countries and they may be greater prizes for us and provide much greater opportunity for the agriculture sector. Thanks to David Wales at AHDB. Now over to Phil Stocker, who's been telling my colleague Alex Black why the sheep sector in particular could be acutely affected. I think overall, you know, our, our sheep meat market um, here in the UK is really quite finely balanced and you know any disruption any changes to that is likely to to cause some yeah, disruption in our marketplace and you know we've been through a year now of really strong prices where the whole supply and demand dynamic seems to have been quite favorable and um, yeah any disruption to that I think we're, we're, we're really very nervous about you know we would see these um, you know strong prices as being part of the industry um, moving towards being more productive or profitable in DEFRA's language. You know, that's, we're moving towards a situation where we're not going to, we're going to see the phasing out of the basic payment system. And um, although we'll con, you know, continue to try and drive efficiencies, you know, getting a, 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 a good price is going to be part of us being more profitable and productive in the future. One of the criticisms that has come out from uh, really all of the farm organisations is about the, the lack of detail in this. Is, is that a concern for yourself? Well, it, I think that is a lack of concern. It's very difficult for us to assess or evaluate without that detail in there. I suppose rumours abound as well. So, um, you know, so it is difficult. But also the lack of detail means that the, the, uh, the deal cannot be getting the level of scrutiny that it deserves. You know, it's not going to get um, that parliamentary scrutiny um, until after a, a, a deal in principle has been signed and it may well be very difficult to go back on things that have been agreed 
Um, and we also know there's been a commitment to a new trade and agriculture commission. And we're still in a situation where the um, nominations or the applications for roles on that commission are still out there. So, you know, it's going to be signed off at a time when it won't get parliamentary or uh, trade and, uh, and agriculture commission scrutiny. And if we're not careful, in my mind, we're going to end up with a situation not dissimilar to the Northern Ireland Protocol, which we're struggling with now, where a deal was signed. And um, we'll tackle the detail later, and that's when the arguments and and uh, yeah, a lot of the concern will arise, I guess. And one of the big things that you've highlighted is standards, and obviously our British standards over here. Can you tell us a little bit about the difference between sheep production here in in the UK and and in Australia? Yeah, and I guess it's worth pointing out that we are on a a, a trajectory of even higher uh, animal welfare and environmental standards. And, you know, the assurances that we've been given by uh, secretaries of state and by ministers that, um, you know, if we're moving in that direction, our standards um, will be protected um, by not allowing products to be sold here that couldn't be produced in that way. You know, we've had assurance after assurance, promise after promise. And, you know, we are worried because we do know that there are significant differences in, in approaches to sheep farming between here in the UK and, uh, and Australia. I mean, transport would be a good place to start. You know, we're just going through a, a consultation with DEFRA about um, further reducing um, transport uh, times, journey times. Uh, about restrictions in moving animals um, in extreme temperatures or not that extreme actually but in cold temperatures or in temperatures over 25 degrees centigrade and um, you know all of those things will bring additional costs and restrictions to our businesses when we know that the the, the uh, max journey time for stock in Australia is 48 hours and of course they will be transporting sheep in, in very high temperatures as well. In my mind, if that's a, a concern for the public and our government here in the UK, why shouldn't it be a concern for the way that sheep are being transported elsewhere in the world? We've got a well-publicised issue of uh, mulesing. Uh, again, in uh, pure animal welfare terms, you know, mulesing would be hugely frowned on by, um, uh, by, again, governments and people here in the UK. Estimates are that somewhere in the region of four out of five sheep are mules in, the, in, in, in Australia. So again, that's another example. Um, fallen stock is another one. You know, we've got really strict fallen stock requirements where it costs the farmer between, say, £18 and £26 a, a dead ewe to, to dispose of. Uh, again, they don't have to undergo those costs in, um, in Australia. If you just look around the, the countryside and look at our the scale and nature of sheep farming, our, our fields, our hedgerows, um, the margins around the hedgerows, uh, the management around water courses, you know, they're all things that we're expected to do and in some cases we're regulated to have to do. Um, and, uh, and again, we just know that is not the case in, uh, in Australia. And all of those things you might look at and say, well, they're quite small in isolation, but when you bundle them all together, they really add up to a significant, a significant difference in production costs, which is why the Australians will be able to access our market um, it, it, it prices um, lower than, than, than we can make a reasonable profit at here in the UK. And there's also a wider issue of, of the precedent that this deal sets as well, isn't there, you know, with future trade deals. I mean, as we go into negotiations, obviously, next with countries such as New Zealand and further afield, I mean, what, what kind of precedent would you think that this deal would set? Well, 
I think that's, uh, you know, isn't that a really good point? That's one of our concerns, really. It does, it sets the scene, if you like. It sets a precedent for the way that our future trade deals are, are going to be approached. And again, if we've got the same uh, approach in terms of, I don't know, this very loose equivalence or whatever, or tackling, um, you know, equivalence with our standards, it will just lead to uh, more liberalisation. In, in global trade. And personally, I, I don't feel that's in our interest. I think if you look at the, all the work that's been done over this last decade or more, really to try to make sure that our, our farmers are more closely connected with, the, with our consumers and with our public, in a way that's part of what gives us that social license to do what we do is because um, people enjoy eating our lamb and we got a close connection with our domestic market. And personally, I don't Although I, I really think there's some opportunities in us producing really high value, high standard products and being able to produce, uh, export products to markets around the world in the premium markets that are looking for high quality products with, with provenance. That's a good thing. But, but actually, we don't, want to, uh, we, we don't want our general agriculture to be being pushed in that direction. Uh, and then in return, we just import food to feed our people. Uh, that is produced in ways that wouldn't be allowed here. We just push some of those animal welfare, environmental issues out of sight. And if they're out of sight, out of mind, I just don't see how we can achieve our objectives with that type of global trade. And I suppose, you know, you touched there upon exports, obviously, to, to some of the premium markets, but there's no kind of opportunity for, certainly for sheep farming, we're not going to be selling um, much lamb to, to the Australians or the, or the Kiwis, are we? No, no, absolutely. I mean, there may be some tiny opportunities in terms of uh, breeding stock, possibly, but again, we've still got the issue. I don't know how how far we are with resolving the uh, small ruminant rule with Australia, but at the moment, we're not able to export anything to um, Australia anyway, in terms of genetics, because of the small ruminant rule. Um, but no, you're quite right. This is uh, like selling coals to Newcastle, isn't it? Really, I can't see us selling much sheep meat to Australia somehow. Thanks to Alex and Phil. Remember to stay up to date with the latest news and political analysis on what the signing of new trade deals means for your UK farming businesses at fginsight.com. And before I go, one last reminder to tell you nominations for our March the Heart Awards close on Friday the 2nd of July. So get your entries in. That's it for this week. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. Until next week, from us at FG, thank you for listening. Goodbye for now.